On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Panina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I shall set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's put this into perspective. I've been giving you a little memory tool as we've gone through the Hebrew Scriptures this year, reminding you that you can sort of put things into historical context if you remember 200 years, 400 years, 200 years, 400 years. The first 200 years of Israeli history, they count as beginning with Abraham and Sarah. These first 200 years are called the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Their wives, their children, all that happened to them during that 200-year period. The 400 years have to do with the time in slavery. When the Israelites had gone south to buy food in a time of great famine, when Joseph convinced them that they should stay in Egypt where he could look after them and they would have plenty to eat, then the coming to power of a Pharaoh who knoweth not Joseph, the Bible said, who made life miserable for the Israelites, and one Egyptian king after the other made life miserable for them for 400 years. Then God lifted up a man named Moses. And Moses, who had run in fear of his life after killing an Egyptian who was mistreating an Israelite, uh, God sent back to Egypt 
and through ten different plagues, finally made Pharaoh convinced he had to let these people go, and God led them, uh, parted the waters of the sea for them, led them back to Sinai, and gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Then follows the 200-year period we know as the time of the judges. When the twelve tribes uh, inhabited the land, led across the river finally by Joshua, the land divided up among the twelve tribes, and then God lifting up a judge, a person who would lead them against a common enemy from time to time. And we know these names, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and the last of the judges was Hannah's child. This baby born to Hannah would be the last of the judges. He would live into the reign of the first two kings, Saul and then David. So last week we ended the story of Ruth uh, with the Bible telling us that Ruth bore a son and he was named Obed. And in time he would father a son named Jesse and he in time would father a son named David. So this story comes in that same period of history, right at the end of the Judges, just before the first of the kings. And the kings will rule for 400 years. So 200 years patriarchs, 400 years slavery, 200 years judges, 400 years kings, and then the destruction wrecked upon the people by the Babylonians. Right? Here is a story. We're told right from the beginning that this is an important family. Uh, many people never got their names into the Bibles, but Elkanah not only gets his name in the Bible, his genealogy is traced back four generations to his great-great-grandfather. So this storyteller is saying, this is an important man. He was a God-fearing man who took his family to Shiloh every year for the holy days. Remember, there is no Jerusalem for the, for the Israelis at this point. Uh, no Jerusalem yet. David will found the new capital city. Solomon will build a new temple. That has not occurred. We still have northern tribes, southern tribes. Favored sons of Jacob, not so favored sons of Jacob. And in the south, the holy place was Shiloh. There they had the beautiful box holding the tablets of the Ten Commandments. So they went to Shiloh every year and offered up sacrifice to God. Now, remember, they didn't burn the sacrifice up completely. It was offered up to God, and as the smoke wafted up to God, if it was a pleasing smell, if the sacrifice was properly offered out of the right kind of penitent hearts, grateful hearts, uh, then it pleased God, and everybody had a barbecue. You got to eat what was left over. So each year, Elkanah would divide the food among members of his family. He had two wives. One was named Hannah. Uh, Dr. Bruce Burt says this name in Hebrew literally means uh, charming, attractive. And we are told that Elkanah loved Hannah even though she had no children. Dr. Bruce Birch also points out, though, that Elkanah is not completely focused on Hannah. He says to her at one point, am I not worth more than ten sons to you? When it would have been so much better had he said, you are worth so much more than ten sons to me. Penina means fertile. It means prolific. And she was making babies all the time. Uh, we're not ever told exactly how many babies she had, but we're told sons and daughters. 
lots of babies. Now, in ancient times, when the population was not nearly so crowded as it is today, it was very important in marriage that everybody who possibly could make babies. Uh, so many babies were lost in childbirth, others in early childhood of various diseases that they could not treat successfully. It was important to make babies. And we have story after story in the Bible of women who had trouble making babies. Now, this was all blamed on the woman at that point, And if not on the woman, then on God. And we know for sure now that many, many times there's some problem with the husband. Not always with the wife. But whosever medical problem this may be, whatever physical problem there is, pointing fingers and being accusatory in some way is not helpful at all. Nonetheless, the story plays out. Panina is making babies all the time. She makes life miserable for Hannah, pointing out how many babies she's having that Hannah's having none. So when they get to Shiloh, which should have been a fun time to go and offer sacrifice to your God, believe that He's pleased with you, that He blesses you, you divide up the food and have food and drink before you go home again. Not for Hannah. She didn't eat. She didn't drink. She wept and she prayed. That's what our story is about today. And I've underlined four things that I think are really important. The first is this. I am a woman deeply troubled, she said. I am a woman deeply troubled. I am not drunk. I have had no strong drink at all. I am pouring out my heart to the Lord. Here we have the name given to Moses at the burning bush. The Eye Asher Eye, the I am who I am. I'm pouring out my heart to the Eye Asher Eye. Carol Kuykendall has written about her battle with cancer. And she said there are people every day who ask me, how are you? Now she said if this is a waitress at a restaurant who asks, how are you? I say, I'm fine, thank you. But if this is my son-in-law, I say, I have cancer. Otherwise, I'm doing fairly well. If it's my Sunday school class, I say to them, today, I'm doing pretty well and I've learned to concentrate on today. I've learned to concentrate on today. But having cancer focuses one's attention, for sure. Having any dread disease focuses one's attention, for sure. Uh, we are aware of our great need. Every Sunday when I go downstairs to pray with this uh, great choir, I remind them that when we come up the steps, we're going to be leading in worship people who have real hurts and concerns. We know some of them. We don't know all of them. But God knows all of them. Every single one. And as we come up the stairs to try to lead you in worship, we want God to hear your prayers and we want you to know for sure that out of your deepest and most vital need, God is the one to whom you should direct those prayers. God is the one. Okay. Number two, Eli answered, 
Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made. Last Sunday, when we asked our veterans to stand, and we asked the families of those now serving in our military forces to stand, that was moving for all of us, I think. It certainly was for me. Uh, my brother had sent an email just a few days ago reminding all of us that it was exactly 40 years ago that day that he got home from Vietnam. We remember that well, of course. He was getting to fly into Houston and mom and dad and my sister and her husband and Gail and I and our little bitty children at that point, only Trey, only Allison and Trey at that time, we were all at the airport waiting for him to get off that plane. We had prayed and prayed of course, that he would survive his time in the war at Vietnam. He was with the 4th Infantry over there, and he had survived. Uh, As these veterans stood, I thought about my own father, who died 10 years ago, just a few days ago, 10th anniversary of his death. My father was a decorated veteran of World War II, not a high-ranking military person, but one who fought with great distinction. He was a part of Patton's Third Army that was rushing uh, that cold, cold Christmas time during the Battle of the Bulls, 1944, to try to get to Bastogne and and break this lock that was just squeezing to death all of the forces the Germans had surrounded at that point, who fought along the Ruhr River, who finally was at Berchtesgaden on the day the Germans surrendered. And then his unit was picked up from Germany and sent straight to the Philippines to join MacArthur's army to get ready to invade Japan. My father came home from the war with an alcohol problem. Uh, Didn't get better, got worse. Uh, Four years after he got home, he was picked up one night by the county sheriff in DWI charge. Uh, This sheriff drove him home and on the way said, I know what's wrong with you. I have the same problem you have. But I want you to look at me And then I want you to look at you. There's one big difference between us. You're an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a sober alcoholic. You are a very intoxicated alcoholic. Now, tomorrow night at 7.30, I'm going to pick you up and take you to a place where you can find a way to be sober too. With an invitation like that from the county sheriff, you get yourself gussied up the next night. And my dad was ready when the sheriff came and picked him up and took him to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he told my dad, at first, you're probably going to need to go to AA every night, every night for a while. Now, our little hometown had one night a week Alcoholics Anonymous, but if you were willing to drive 27 miles to Henderson, you could go another night. If you're willing to drive 32 miles to Kilgore, you could go another night. If you're willing to drive 42 miles to Shreveport, Louisiana, you could go another night. And my father said, I wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting it. But I kept hearing others say that one night, if you keep going, you will hear your story. One night you will hear somebody tell his or her story and it will be so like yours that you will identify with that person's story. He was desperate, uh, didn't want to be in trouble with the sheriff anymore, so every night he was going somewhere to an AA meeting, driving however far it was necessary 
to go to an AA meeting. And one night in Kilgore, he said, I heard my story. Somebody told his story, and it was my story. It was so much like mine that I identified with it. And when the meeting was over, I walked up to this man who had identified himself simply by his first name. His name was Burton. And I walked up to him and said, Thank you for sharing. You just told my story. And I heard my father tell this in open meetings of AA for years after that. He said, and Burton looked right at him and said, You know, I could tell when I was telling my story that it was also your story. And you know what else I could tell? That you were going to make it. Okay? I could tell you were going to make it. And my dad said, it changed my life. It literally changed my life that I had heard my story and I had been told that my prayer was going to be answered. My prayer was going to be answered. Okay, brings us to number three. Because that's exactly what Hannah heard next. Eli thought she was drunk. He sees a woman crying. Uh, sees her lips moving, can't hear what she's saying. Eli's getting along in years at this point, doesn't hear so very well. Um, but he's attendant. He's there. He's there for the holy days. He knows that this is a big event for families. They've come a long way. They've offered sacrifice. They're enjoying the barbecue and all the wine that went along with it. And he assumes she's drunk. And he says, that the, the, the rabbis translate it, sober up. But when she says, I'm not intoxicated, I've had no strong drink at all, no wine, I've been praying, even though he doesn't know what she's been praying for, he says, may the God of Israel grant your petition. May he grant your petition. Um, last Tuesday... I made three presentations at St. Paul's Methodist Church uh, right near Rice University. Um, they were having terrible thunderstorms down in the Houston area. Uh, I, you can normally fly to Houston about an hour and 15 minutes. I was in the air almost three hours. Uh, we circled and circled and circled. At one point, the pilot said we were over San Angelo, Texas, if you know where that is. It's a long way from Houston, and we were lined up trying to get into Hobby Airport. But I did manage to get there in time for my first presentation. But it gave me a lot of time to think about those years in Houston, the years we had there. Very good years in many ways, very difficult years in our country. Um, I went there in 1965, right out of graduate school. And you remember the mid-60s? We had all the, the struggles going on in the civil rights movement at that point. Um, some militant uh, African Americans were breaking into churches right in the middle of worship, coming down the aisle and demanding millions of dollars in reparations uh, for all the wrong that had been done to them. It was the time of the Vietnam War. My brother was drafted into that war and served until the fall, 1968. He was there in Vietnam at the Big Tet Offensive in January of that year, 1968. It was a time of the first heart transplant, you know, and the, the, the wonderful thing that was, 
It was also the time of the horrible conventions in 1968, uh, the riots in Chicago, people throwing human excrement on, on police officers and so on. It was a really, really difficult time in many ways. One of the things we enjoyed always was football. When we first got to this big city of Houston, I decided, well, uh, we would enjoy football. And I bought season tickets to the Rice Owl games. They were in the old Southwest Conference, so that would be fun. We'd get to see Texas and A&M and SMU and all the others come into town. But Rice folks didn't support their team very much. They had a huge stadium, 75,000 seats, and they'd normally have 15,000 maybe. Uh, 10 on a bad day. So it wasn't a very fun place to go to see a football game. So we decided when the, as the Astrodome was a beautiful new place, University of Houston was playing there, why not buy season tickets University of Houston games? They had a coach named Bill Yeoman. And Bill Yeoman was a very active member of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Houston. He was a coach there for 24 years, a head coach. Before that, he was at Michigan State as an assistant coach under a very well-known coach named Duffy Doherty. And I heard Bill Yeoman give his testimony one time. He was asked to speak to a big gathering of lay, laymen. And this was his story. That he was uh, a good football player. He was, in fact, a, an All-American when he played football. That he had heard that young coaches who managed to get on Duffy Doherty's staff at Michigan State had a great shot at being head coach at a major university. That Doherty had a reputation that he brought along young coaches really well. And when Duffy Doherty said, this person is ready for a bigger job, that person was offered a bigger job. So he said, I went to Michigan State looking forward to being head coach at a major university in the United States. But he said, I coached year after year. And I saw others get good opportunities and none came to me. When I had been with Duffy six years, two big jobs came open right after the season was over. I applied for both, as did one of our other assistant coaches. I'd been there longer than he had been. I knew this was my year. And Duffy recommended the other. I was hurt, deeply hurt. I pouted for several days, avoiding him. It was after football season. And then one day I was walking down the hallway, and just as I passed his office door, he said, Bill, come in. And he said, I went in and sat down. And he said, I know you're hurt with me. I want to tell you why I made the decision I made. I have never felt you've given your whole heart to Michigan State. I believe you came here to get a big job somewhere else. And I'm not going to recommend you. Because if you have never given us your absolute best, your undivided attention, how can I tell some other great university you would give them undivided attention? Perhaps there you'd be looking for the next step, the next step, rather than concentrating on that university. So I want to tell you, you can be here for 30 years. I'm not recommending you until I feel you've given everything you've got to Michigan State. And I ask, and then you'll recommend me? And then I'll recommend you, he said. 
And Bill Yeoman said, I went home that night and slept better than I had in ages. Because I now knew I really had to do only one thing. Give everything I had, the best I had, to Michigan State and Duffy would take care of the rest. And that's exactly how it happened, he said. And then he said to this big gathering of Methodist laymen, guess what that says about our faith? We can sleep at night if we've heard God say, you don't have to be anxious about next year or ten years from now. All you have to do is give me the best you got today. Give me the best you got today. And I'll take care of your tomorrow, your next year, your ten years from now. Just give me the best you got. Bill Yeoman was the first coach in the state of Texas to recruit black athletes to a predominantly white university. Uh, he was very courageous and coached there for 24 years as head coach. Well, Hannah was being assured, if you have thrown your every care on the God of Israel, He will take care. Okay, so notice then, uh, it says Hannah rose and ate, drank with her husband, no longer sad. She really believed what Eli had told her that if she gave her all to the God of Israel, the God of Israel would take care. Number four. So the story says, the God of Israel, the Lord God, remembered Hannah. He remembered her all those years she had come to Shiloh, all those years she had prayed. He remembered her and gave her a son. It was the Lord God who gave her a son. Almost every day, a dozen times a day, you and I are hearing what dire straits our economy is in. And I don't belittle that. There are even some now that are starting to say, this is like 1929. And others who say, we are nowhere close to being like 1929. But I decided, if we are in any way like 1929... God was birthing babies in 1929 that would make a real difference in the world, for better, for worse. Uh, Dr. Walter Brueggemann in his commentary in this passage says, every time a new baby is born, there's a possibility for something wonderful happening in the world. Every time a little girl, a little boy is born, there is a possibility of something really wonderful happening. But notice, he says in his commentary, there is more emphasis here on the giver than on the gift. This giver keeps on giving. Focus on the giver. Well, I decided to look up 1929. See what babies God was birthing in 1929. I just took a very few from a very long list. Entertainers, we tend to know those names. I'll mention for some of them what I remembered first when I saw the name. They did many other things in a lifetime. Sergio Leone, remember him? An Italian director that made Clint, Clint Eastwood famous. 
Amanda Blake, the old Gunsmoke series, Max Van Cito, Judgment at Nuremberg, I remembered, Audrey Hepburn, Bob Newhart, Christopher Plummer, Sound of Music, Dan Blocker, Haas on Bonanza, you remember, John Cassavetes, Dirty Dozen, and many others, Dick Clark, American Bandstand, Ed Asner, The Dick Van Dyke Show, June Carter Cash, McLean Stevenson on the MASH program, just a few of the entertainers born in 1929. In sports, Ryan Duran, who pitched for the New York Yankees, Roger Bannister, who broke the four-minute mile for the first time, Bo Schembechler, another great football coach, Don Larson, who pitched a perfect game for the Yankees, Arnold Palmer, Bobby Bowden, who still coaches Florida State Seminoles. In the arts, a great architect, Frank Gehry, was born that year, Andre Previn, Burt Bacharach, Beverly Sills of opera fame. In journalism and writing, Mary Higgins Clark was born that year, David Broder, Barbara Walters, William Sapphire. Let me name just a few others. James Schlesinger would become Secretary of Defense for this country, Liz Claiborne in fashion, Harvey Cox, a famed theologian, Francis Gary Powers, who was shot down in a U-2 plane by the Russians, Jacqueline Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mary Maxwell, who married a fellow named Gates, and they had a son named Bill. But most of the people born in 1929 are not world famous. Not world famous, but many of them became my teachers, my physicians, my preachers, uh, mentors, bankers, lawyers, business people. So you and I, most of us who have sons and daughters, thank God and say, I will do the best I can to help this gift of yours be forever faithful.